Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Joe, and I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. Uh, for those of you that are able, uh, please turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 27. Uh, for those of you that are looking on your pew Bibles, uh, I believe it's on page 460 there. And uh, for those of you that don't have a copy of a physical Bible at home, uh, we do uh, encourage you to take this pew Bible home with you. It is our gift to you, and our prayer is that uh, you will come to an encounter uh, with God as you look inside uh, His Word. Now, as we turn to Psalm 27, let me start us off here this way. Many of you might have heard what is now uh, famously called the marshmallow experiment. Um, it was a sociological experiment that was done in the 60s and into the 70s, actually. Uh, it was a simple experiment where they had uh, children that were kind of in, put into a room, and they were given one marshmallow. And the person conducting the experiment would say, okay, you have this one marshmallow, but if you can hold out and not eat that marshmallow for 15 minutes, what's going to happen? We're going to give you another one. And that experiment was done with many, many children over the years, and what uh, the sociologists did was kind of tracked their, how their life turned out, you know, years and years and years, and saw their success, and basically saying that those 15 minutes of patience was somehow the indicator of success for you. Now, there are varying degrees of kind of conclusions and controversy around what we can deduce from that experiment, but what I found interesting was the reaction of the children that were doing their darn best to hold out for that second marshmallow for the duration of the 15 minutes. Now, you can look this up on YouTube. There's varying kind of uh, uh, videos that were taken where they did this experiment. And they're all so adorable because the children, you know, they're left in a room and there's a camera that's kind of capturing what they're doing. And they do all kinds of different things to try and hold out for those 15 minutes knowing that they're going to get one more marshmallow at the end of it. You have children that are singing, trying to kind of forget about the fact that their intense desire is for that marshmallow right now. You have children that would kick their tables. You have children that would literally turn around because they can't bear the thought of looking at this marshmallow for one more second out of fear that they're going to reach out and grab it. Now getting the second one. And as adorable as it may be, I th there's a part of kind of their struggle that I think for us as adults that kind of tugs at our heartstrings. Why? Because we resonate with that. It may just be a marshmallow for a child, but for all of us, to one degree or another, we find ourselves constantly in a season of waiting, where we find ourselves in a season between what is and what could be. So we're waiting for all different kinds of things in life. Maybe at work, you're waiting for that promotion, and you've been waiting for quite some time. You know that you are ready for it, but it hasn't been granted to you. Maybe you and your significant other, you've been waiting for a child for a long time. And you know that you're going to make good parents, but for one reason or another, you don't have one. Or maybe you're single, and you've been waiting for quite some time for a romantic partner. Maybe you're really wanting to get married, and you want a spouse, and you've been waiting for years, and that person has not yet come. Or maybe there's others of us, I've heard this term recently called, what's called a pandemic rage, 
right? After a prolonged season of lockdown and, and regulations and those kinds of things, we're feeling frustrated, not just at the loss of the lives that are around us, but loss of a certain lifestyle that we took for granted for so long. And we're waiting for the end to come, and we hear variants and all those kinds of things, and we are frustrated and we're exhausted and we're angry. Whatever it is that you are waiting for, in this season of waiting, what if there was a camera that was drawn on us? What would our waiting look like? See, I think that's why the children that are just having a hard time waiting, it tugs at our heartstrings because to some degree we're all experiencing a very similar thing. And that's what Psalm 27 is teaching us to do, what it means to wait, what it means for us to be in a season of waiting. And if you were to look at this passage that I'm going to read for you in a second, what's interesting is that if you were to look at the first half of the psalm, you find the psalmist uh, is really, really confident. You know, I'm going to make it through and everything's going to be okay because I have God. But as soon as you turn the corner into the second half of the chapter, what we'll find is that the mood suddenly changes. The psalmist is not so sure anymore. There's a lot of doubt in his mind, and he even comes to a point of despair. What's interesting here is that Psalm 27 is uh, talking about this, this common human experience that we all share because when we're in a season of waiting... There may be seasons of our waiting in which we are confident. We know that everything's going to be fine and we're going to be okay and we're just going to make it through. But there are other seasons in our waiting in which we feel like things are not going to be so great. There are seasons of doubt, frustration, and despair. And many times we vacillate from one extreme to another, or if you're anything like me, we hold both of those two opposite competing emotions together at once. And what the Bible is telling us is that, you know what, if that is what you are experiencing, that is okay. Let me show you how to process it in light of who God is and what He has done and point you away forward so that your seasons of waiting is not just met with agony, but so that your season of waiting can be filled with hope joy, and peace. Right? That's what Psalm 27 is going to show us. So let me read this for you now. I'm going to read the entire psalm. <clears throat> it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers doers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. 
Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. So it should be obvious to us, having read the passage, that the psalmist is surrounded by his enemies and he's going through a really difficult season in life and he's waiting. He's waiting for some kind of deliverance and salvation to come his way. And here we find what it means for us to live in this season of in-between, like I mentioned before. And we're going to find three things. The first two from, that we'll uh, see from the passage is we're going to find out two ways in which we are to wait. And lastly, we find one thing to wait for. Right? Two ways in which we are called to wait the manner of our waiting, and the, and the last uh, one thing to wait for. Okay, so the first two we're going to be told is that the way in which we need to wait is to wait with confidence and assurance. And lastly, we are called to wait for beauty. Wait, for confident, wait with confidence and assurance and wait for uh, beauty. So let's take a look at these three things. But first, uh, wait with confidence. Now, <clears throat> How does a psalmist begin, right? It begins with a couplet, right? A phrase or a verse that is repeated for emphasis, right? He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He says, the Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's basically saying there is nothing for me uh, to fear, he has it for emphasis. Now, <clears throat> if you're to look at uh, why the source of his confidence, we get to who God is. And how does he describe who God is, right? He describes God as being his light and his salvation, and he describes God as being a stronghold of my life. Now, what commentators would tell you is that both of those imageries, all right, images have militaristic overtone, undertones. Right? And so he sees God, and he sees God almost like an army that is defending him, an army that will fight for him. And so when you get to the image, the second image of being a stronghold, right, he sees God being in his defense. Right? He is a God who is going to protect him from his enemies. Right? So he's on the defensive. But if you get to the first image of God being His light and His salvation, we see God on the offensive. When there is darkness, He sees God right, coming into His life as light, dispelling all that is dark. And so when He sees God, He sees God as a source of confidence, where God is acting as a shelter for Him right, against His uh, enemies, evil, evil doers, adversaries, and all different kinds of foes, and even a whole army that is encamped against Him right, cannot stand up to the defense that He has in God. But He sees God also fighting for Him. 
right? When there is a season of darkness in his life and is overwhelming him, he sees God as a source of light. What happens when you flick on that switch when it's dark outside? There is instant, there is instantaneous uh, illumination that happens, and that's what he sees God doing. The moment he steps into the scene, he sees all of the darkness in his life, right, fleeing away instantaneously. And so when, when the psalmist finds himself in this season of waiting, when there is uh, just a lot of difficulty that is going through him, he finds God as a source of his confidence, where he is capable of freeing him from anxiety and fear and leading him into a place of confidence. And so if you look at verse 3, Right? He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me. He says, yet I will be confident. Now, that word confident in the original language, it's literally translated, I have unshakable conviction. Unshakable conviction. He's saying, I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that God is fully capable of defending me and driving out all that is ailing me in my life right now. And so when he looks to God, he, he finds that the ultimate source of his confidence comes from what? Not just God in the abstract, but more specifically from God's power. When he looks to God, he finds a God who is capable of doing literally anything for him. And that is a conviction that he has, and that is a conviction that you and I need. When we're finding ourselves in a season where we want to get out of, and we are longing for a season that could be, who is going to be the one who is capable of getting you from point A to point B? We may look to our career to that end. If I work hard enough, if I am more proficient in the things that I'm doing, maybe I will get there. Maybe you and I, we tend to look to our relationships, right? Maybe my significant other will get me there. Or maybe some of us look to our religiosity. If my devotional life, if I'm more devoted to God, if I'm more devoted to the church, maybe I will get there. But that's, where, that's not where the psalmist finds his confidence. He's not finding confidence within himself or anything that he can produce. He finds it in God. He's saying God is the one who is capable. And that's where he finds his confidence. But <clears throat> having said that, here's where we need to exercise caution. Because it's not as if he looks to God and he forgets that he is in the midst of great trouble. Right? The psalmist is not in the business of minimizing the terrors of life. He is fully aware of the fact that there is an army against him. Right? If you go down further into the passage, he finds that his own father and his own mother have disowned him. So what he is doing is he's not espousing right, what is commonly known as this kind of Christian sentimentality that says, you know what, if you believe in Jesus... Right? If you are a believer of God, if you are a church-goer, then everything is going to be fine. There will be nothing that troubles you. Everything is going to be rosy. Right? That is simply not the case when we look at the Bible. You look, at, look at Job. 
right? Faithfully serving God and loving Him. And look at all that happens to Him. Look at Jesus Himself, the one who was sinless, who went to the cross. No, if we're going to have confidence, it's going to have to be confidence in the midst of our sufferings, not confidence away from our sufferings. There's a philosopher named Ernest Becker from the last century who wrote this uh, really good book called The Denial of Death. And listen to what he has to say. He says, I think that taking life seriously means something such as this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the grotesque, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. As far as I know, Ernest Becker is not writing from a Christian perspective. But he says, if you're going to be honest about life, you can't deny the fact that there is such a thing called death that is coming for all of us. You cannot deny the fact that there is such a thing as suffering in life that is real and tangible and is going to enter into your life at one point or another. And the psalmist is what honest about that reality. And so he says, if I'm going to have true confidence, then it's going to be confidence that doesn't blunt the force of evil and suffering. No, it is the kind of confidence that is defiant in the face of it, in full recognition of it. And that is the confidence that the psalmist is talking about. Now, there, I can't think of a better way to describe this than actually reading the text for yourself because there's a beautiful uh, example of this defiant confidence that comes in this text from verses 5 to 6. He says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. Here's what's happening. He finds his enemies, and he finds that God is going to shield him. He is afraid. But here's what he says next. He says, He will lift me high upon a rock. As he thinks about God as a source of his confidence, he is scared at first. Yes, right? he says, I need to be hidden. But soon, right, here's where his imagination turns. He's saying, God is such a, a, a trustworthy source of my confidence that he is not just going to be somebody who hides me right, from my troubles. No, he's going to put me high upon a rock where all of my enemies and all of my adversaries and foes can have full view of me. He's going to lift me high upon a rock. And then look where he goes in uh, verse uh, 6. And he says, now, right, having seen the source of confidence that is God, he says, now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. He's saying, my enemies, they see me, they want to get their hands off me, but there is no way that they can ever touch me because of who God is in my life. And then what does he do? He says, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. He is singing without a care in his life. Do you see where the confidence is taking the psalmist? He sees all of the things that are ailing him right now, and he knows that he needs to be hidden from it. But once he finds his confidence in God, what does he do? 
He goes from a place of hiding to a place of shouting and singing with joy. This is confidence that is real and grounded in the everyday stuff of life. That is fully cognizant of the fact that life is hard. It is not ignorant of it. But it takes it all in and says, and yet, I will be confident because of who God is. See, the kind of confidence that Christianity has in store for you is not the kind that is going to shield you from reality. As a matter of fact, it was Jesus himself who said, if you want to come after me, better deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. It is not ignorant of the suffering that exists in the world. No, it takes it all in. And in full view of it, it says, there is a confidence in store that is able to face up to all that the world has to throw your way. And that is the kind of confidence that you and I are going to need if we're going to wait with patience, that defined confidence. So that's the first thing, wait with confidence. But secondly, how we are to wait is to wait with assurance. And so as I've said earlier, the first half of the psalm, right, there's this defined confidence that marks the attitude of the psalmist. But as you get to the second half, right, we see that things begin to change, right, from verse 7, right? Leading up to verse 6, he's singing and making melody to God. And then verse 7, what happens? Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Right? He is pleading with God, and he's saying, God, will you listen to me? Will you hear my voice? And he's pleading with him, be merciful to me and be gracious to me. Now, where, <laughs> why does that happen? It's happening because when the psalmist is looking to God and who he is in his mighty power, He sees that there's a wealth of confidence that is available for him. But when the psalmist looks to himself, he finds doubt. He finds that he is in need of mercy. He finds that the confidence that is available out there for him is something that he needs even though he is not deserving of it. He knows that he's not the kind of person who deserves to be confident. And so in this psalm, what he finds, what the psalmist finds is that there is a God who is fully capable of delivering on this confidence. But when he, finds himself, when he looks within himself... He finds that it's a whole other matter altogether that this God should be for him. He finds a God who is uh, able. He's not sure if this is a God who is willing. And that's where the problem lies. So you can have a God who is fully capable of doing anything in the world, but if he is not bent on utilizing all of that power for you, what good 
is that power. And so he finds that, you know, there's a wealth of confidence, but what I also need here is assurance. How can I know that this God is for me? And the assurance is what he has. And one of the most, for me at least, the most beautiful verse in uh, this chapter is verse 10. He finds that assurance. The psalmist says, for my, mother and my, my, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. For whatever reason, and we'll get to that, the psalmist not only had confidence in who God is, he had assurance that even though he is undeserving, he has this assurance, and that is what you and I need. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon meditating on this verse, said, these dear relations will be the last to desert me. But if the milk of human kindness should dry up even from their breasts, there is a father who never forgets. See, what you and I need when we're going through a prolonged season of waiting, is we need to know a God who is not just able. We need to know a God who is willing. And you can't have one without the other. See, I don't know what your uh, spiritual background is. Uh, Maybe you've grown up in church all of your life, and even then, I don't know what kind of church you grew up in. Maybe you grew up in a kind of a mushy church where you sang love songs to Jesus all the time. Right. It, what I find is that in traditions like that, you find a God who is more often than not willing but not able. A Jesus, a soft Jesus who is willing to sit next to you and cry with you, but not a God who brings thunder and lightning, who will fight for His people. Maybe there are others of you who grew up in a more kind of traditionally uh, religious background, And you really got a sense that God is able, right? He's this kind of unapproachable, right, kind of veiled uh, with tradition. You know, that kind of a God is a God uh, you saw. And so you have no problem believing that God is able, but that God is willing, that he is gentle and tender towards you, you have a problem with that. Here's a problem with both of them. Most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, live out, a sen- live out of a sense of an ideal of who we ought to be instead of who we are. We're all striving to be better people. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is that is what we aspire to all the time and we are never content with who we are. And so we say, you know what? If we get to that ideal of who we want to be, then I will be acceptable, right? That's when I can be confident. And of course, we all know that, you know, well, for those of us without an unhealthily inflated ego, know that we don't measure up. Even by our own standards, never mind the standards that have been placed on you. And so... For most of us, we go through life with a sense of insecurity about us. We know that we do not measure up, so we overcompensate in different ways, known and unknown to us. And that's how we go through life. How in the world are we going to have the kind of assurance and confidence that we need to wait? 
And even for those of us who are prideful enough to think that we measure up to our own standards, well, if there's any of you that are like that, then you're even worse off. Why? Because you will be insufferable to the people around you. Why? Because when things don't go your way, as they are bound to not go your way, you will be petulant. You're saying, I deserve every dime that I get. How come I'm not missing out on this part of life? You will be angry and frustrated and irritating to those around you. And not only that, underneath all of it, you're going to still be insecure. Why? Because you are not loved. You are not confident because of who you are. You're only confident because of what you've accomplished. Your source of confidence and assurance, you're finding it within yourself. But that's a shaky foundation. What we, what you and I need is to know that regardless of what we may or may not have accomplished, whether or not we've reached some kind of ideal of who we ought to be in life, that we are loved and accepted. That ultimate reality God himself is for us and not against us, not because of anything that we can bring before him, but simply because he loves us. Perhaps the most beautiful picture of this actually comes from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God is speaking to his people, and he says in verse 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you, he goes on to say that he rescued you from slavery. Do you see the logic here? It's circular reasoning, is it not? God says, I, I did not set my affection on you because of all of these things, because you were nothing to behold. No, I set my affection on you, and I delivered you from slavery, and I loved you simply because I loved you. When you let that reality get into the core of your being, that has the power to explode out and confidence and assurance in your life. When things aren't going your way, that's when you'll know to wait, you'll know how to wait well. When you ask your spouse, go home and try this. Well, if you're listening to the sermon, you'll know the right answer. Go home and ask your spouse, honey, why do you love me? And if the answer is anything other than I love you because I love you, it's the wrong answer. I love you because you have a beautiful face. Well, guess what? It ain't going to stay pretty. <laughs> I love you because you are so kind to me. Wake up call to the newlyweds. <laughs> ain't going to stay kind. answer is, I love you because I love you. And that is what the psalmist found in God. And that is what you and I need, to know that the God of the universe, ultimate reality himself, who can literally bend time and space, who spoke the entire universe into existence, bends his will, bends his strength towards your favor. That God is not only able to do that, but He is willing to do that for you. That unconditional love and acceptance 
is what you and I are going to need if we're going to have the kind of confidence and assurance to get through the toughest of times, to know that indeed everything, cosmically speaking, is going to be okay, because not just because God is in charge, but the God who is in charge is for me and will never be against me. See, that's what you and I are going to need. But here's the question as we get into the last point. <clears throat> How can we be certain that God will receive us? Right? That's the kind of love that you and I need. Right? You have that kind of love from a spouse. Right? You're, you're, you know, your marriage is going to soar on wings like eagles. Right? Your life is going to be okay. Right? One of the things that I say time and time again in marriage counseling and my homilies too is that you know, your life outside of your marriage can be falling apart, but if you have a good marriage... Right? You're going to be singing in the morning. Your life outside of marriage can be going well. Promotion after promotion, everybody thinks you're the best thing in the world. But if you have one argument with your wife, then it's like, oh, my life stinks. Right? I'm sure Aaron and I, we can attest to this. Preach the best sermon in the world. And you go home and you get into an argument with your wife. You're like, oh, I'm the worst Christian in the world. Right? That's what happens. Now, that is the kind of love and, and interaction that you have with a significant other person. Can you imagine if you have that kind of relationship with God, your creator and sustainer, your Lord and King? And so that's what you and I need, but how can we know? How can we know that this God will always be for us and not against us? And that is the pursuit of every Christian in life. Because ultimately, underneath all the other things that we may wait for, promotion, spouse, child, whatever, the case, whatever it may be, underneath all of that waiting, there needs, to be an under, there needs to be an undergirding waiting that takes place in the life of every Christian where we are waiting for the ultimate beauty that is God. And that is the last point that we'll look at. We need to wait with confidence. We need to wait with assurance. But lastly, we need to wait for beauty. And this is where we get to the middle part of the passage, verse 4. Now, to give you context, right, leading up to this point, right, what have we found? <clears throat> we found that there's opposition all around the psalmist. Right, there's an army that is encamped against him. And so what does he decide to do? He doesn't say, wait, I have people all around me that want my life, so what I'll do is let, I'll arrange for my defense. You know, like I have an army around me, I better have an army myself. Or he could have said, you know, like, like uh, let, let me find some people that I can lean on because all of these people are against me. I need to find uh, uh, some allies here uh, that will be willing to fight for me as well, right? Uh, let me form some political alliances here and there. And so, you know, let me kind of shore up my, uh, my defenses here and let's see if we can go on the offensive a little bit because my life is in danger, right? He could have said all of those things, but the psalmist doesn't say any of those things, does he? What does he say? Surrounded by an army, he says, the one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. He says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That is the one thing he asks of. 
he has of God. To dwell, right? Not just content in renting out an Airbnb nearby so I can drop in and be inspired so that I can go do something else, right? But to dwell, to continue to be there, right? To gaze, right? Not just to take a quick glance at, right? So that I'm energized and I can move on. No, he wants his eyes fixed on the beauty of God, to gaze upon him, to inquire, right? Not just look up the Bible as a reference so that I can get my answers, so that I can move on. No, I want to sit under and have the beauty of God's will in His perfect ways direct my life. This is all the days of my life, the psalmist says, to take the beauty of who God is and all that He wills. And He wants to be captured by its beauty, to live out of that beauty. One commentator says, to behold and to inquire is talking about a preoccupation. I love the way he puts it. A preoccupation with God's person and His will. He says, it is the essence of worship, indeed of discipleship. To be preoccupied with beauty. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about beauty. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty though God knows even that is bounty enough. He says, no, we want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. We want to be one with the great beauty. Right? That makes sense, right? When we see beauty, we want more and more of it. We want to uh, bathe in it. We want to experience it. When we see a great movie, what do we do? We, can't, we want the sequel to come out. We want to know how this, the, the story progresses. Right? We, we talk about it with others. And if you're a nerd like me, you go on Wikipedia and you read all about it. Production and you know, all of those things. Right? We want more and more of it. But the problem is, inevitably, that is going to die down because the sequel is almost never as good as the original. You taste a particularly rich food. What do you want to do? You want more and more and more of it. You get rich foods, though you have enough of it. You get sick of it. You can't eat more of it. Beauty runs out. But we need the kind of beauty that will only satisfy us more as we seek after more of it. Now, why is beauty what the psalmist is after. Why is he after beauty when his life is falling apart? Well, it's the same reason why when I'm stressed, I venture out into the great outdoors that is called my backyard. <laughs> when you've moved from Manhattan recently, like your backyard is a great... Rabbits and, and squirrels and, and birds that I can't name. Right? And I just sit there and I look up into the sky and the trees and... I feel better. This is why some of you, when you're stressed, you put on your favorite piece of music when you get anxious. You go to the museum, look at paintings. Why? Because beauty has the power to lift you up out of yourself, connect you to a reality that is larger than who you are, and calm you down. 
And why? Because all beauty is pointing to the great beauty that is God. And we, want, we need that beauty to last, right? Psalm 16, the psalmist cries out, You will fill me with joy in your presence. He says, With eternal pleasures at your right hand. We need pleasure everlasting. But here's where we pause and say, you know, some of you that may be cynical might say, you know what, like that's great, you know, beauty as a mechanism for you to kind of escape from your problems and stuff, but what happens at the end of that? You come back to the same problems that you've had, right? And for those of you that may be cynical about religion, you may be saying, yeah, I mean, like that's why people go to church every Sunday, right, to escape from their problems. And then they go back on Monday and they're faced with the same problems over and over again. So here again, we need a beauty that is not just an escape from your problems, that is an escape from sufferings. And we need beauty that is grounded in the reality of suffering. And as a matter of fact, I would say Christianity provides a source of beauty that is so grounded in the reality of suffering that we find that the greatest beauty that Christianity has to offer is actually birthed out of suffering. Why do I say that? Here's what's interesting. Notice where the psalmist goes to see the beauty of God. He says, I want to be at the temple. Right? Inquire him and his temple. Right? The temple was a house of God. Right? This is an important point, important point for us to consider. Why? Because the temple was a place in which God's presence resided, where his beauty would be found. And the Bible talks over and over, the Old Testament talks about the temple, right, being the place in which God's presence and his beauty resides. But here's what's interesting. There were certainly times throughout Old Testament history where the glory of God came down, the Shekinah glory of God came down in the temple. And it was uh, an amazing sight to behold. But you know, primarily, the temple was not that place where God's glory would come down every other Sunday. No, primarily, the temple was a place of worship and sacrifice. Right? This is a place where numerous animals were brought in, where they were slaughtered and they were drained of their blood, Right, it was a place in which they were burnt up. Right, it would have been a gory sight, actually. It would have smelled less like the nice temple with incense burning. No, it would have probably smelled more like a butcher shop in a lot of days. But time and time again, when the Old Testament writers you know, reflect on this uh, place that is a temple, they say this is where God's beauty is found. Now the question is, how can such beauty be found amidst all of this gore and violence? And in the New Testament, we find that Jesus is the answer to that question. Specifically speaking, Jesus on the cross. Here's how one one preacher puts it. You will never know God as Father except by Jesus Christ. In particular, by His death upon the cross. Look at the cross, gaze on, meditate on, and survey the wondrous cross, and then you will see something of him. Now, what was wondrous about the cross? Here's what you and I need to know. The crucifixion, as a method of uh, execution in that day, was not unlike the horrendous practice of lynching in our country. Some of you may know, uh, lynching was done as a spectacle, 
Right? The community came out and saw this terrible act being carried out. And just like the practice of lynching, crucifixion was an, uh, an act that was done, carried out as a spectacle. Right? The community came out to witness uh, this horrendous form of execution. And it was done by the authorities to send a message to the community and saying, you see this horrendous thing that is being done to this cr- uh, criminal? Be aware that the same thing will happen to you if you're not careful in the way you live your life. Let it be a sign. Now here's the good news of the gospel. And here's what God does. He takes the spectacle of the cross, horrendous sign, and what he does is he flips it on its head. Colossians 2, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive with Christ. He says, He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And listen to what Paul says here. He says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, friends, here's where the wonder of the cross is found. We find that in Jesus, Christ on the cross. Sorry, let me just, got too excited there. (laughs) When the Holy Spirit comes down. Here's where the wonder of the cross is found. In Jesus Christ on the cross, what God does, he, he took on the disfigurement, the ugliness, Right, the inadequacy that you and I each feel to at our soul's core. And what he has done with all of those things is he has not only covered us with his blood, but in the triumph that is found on the cross, what he does with each and every one of us that put our trust in Jesus Christ is he lifts us high upon a rock in full view of all of, that, all of the world uh, that has to offer in terms of throwing sin at us, right? bringing us to a place of death, right? in full view of all of those things makes a spectacle out of them so that you and I can say because of Jesus and being united with Jesus, you know what? I may be inadequate. I may not live up to the idea deals that even I have set for myself. You know what? I struggle with these things and I'm going through this and that and the other in my life and yet I can be defiant and hold my chin up and say, you have no power over me. Why? Because Jesus on the cross made a spectacle of you in full view of the entire universe. That is how you and I know that we can be confident and assured The God who is capable of anything will never be against us and be always for us. The beauty of the cross reminds us that any weapon that is formed against us will not prosper, but will only drive us to the wonder of the cross because every instance of suffering and shortcomings in your life is a reminder that in spite of all of those things, Jesus gladly laid down his life for you. And that's when God becomes your light and your salvation. That's when you will be able to sing with the psalmist that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Let me just close with this. There's a hymn that I love that's called uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. 
And part of its uh, verse, it says this, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things on, of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. By God's grace, may this reality take shape in your heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you for this word and we thank you for the confidence and assurance that we can have because of your son Jesus. And we ask that we would look to the cross and there we, may we find God you being for us and not against us you having committed to us all the way to the cross. And I pray for all those in our congregation and to anybody who's watching right now who's in a season of waiting, pray that you would give us the confidence and assurance that we need to wait with hope, joy, and peace. And by your grace, let it all be so. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us all rise as we close with our last song.